Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. Welcome back to The Spark. One of the nation's most infamous crimes occurred in New York Central Park in April 1989. A white female jogger was beaten and raped. Five black and Latino teenagers were accused of the crime. They were dubbed the Central Park Five, and they confessed after three days of intense interrogation by police. They all were convicted, even though they were innocent, and they spent years in prison and juvenile facilities. Eventually, another man confessed, and DNA exonerated the Central Park Five. Kevin Richardson was one of them, and he was in Gettysburg last weekend, where he told his story to the Spark. Kevin Richardson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's go back to that night in April 1989. What were you doing in the park? Well, I remember that day. Uh, it was a uh, Easter vacation, you know, so I was just happy to be out of school for a while. And actually, I lived across the street from Century Park, which was the northern part of, of Century Park of Harlem. Um, so we was on East vacation and I went to the park because I seen kids going there and I just wanted to join the kids, not knowing what would might happen, but I just wanted to be a part of something at that time. And I had a friend of mine that actually passed away and he told me, don't go. I feel something that's funny about it. And I said, why not? Because I lived there. Um, but then when I went in, I didn't come home for seven years later. So when did you know that something was wrong? Okay, so when I first went into the park, it was many kids there. It was about 20 to 30 kids um, whom I'd never seen before. But in the area, i just seen them in passing. When I seen someone get attacked on a tandem bike, it was a couple on a tandem bike, then I realized this is not my cup of tea right here. So I decided to go home. Um, I wasn't scared about what happened in the park. I was scared because I was breaking my curfew. So from what I understand, when you really knew something was wrong is when the police came after you. Sure. I remember this so vividly, you know, like it was yesterday. And this was 1989. Um, <clears throat> I was on my own, on my way home, actually, on Fifth Avenue. If anybody knows Manhattan, I was walking home. And then all of a sudden, I seen a slew of police cars circling us. And in particular, myself, um, I remember them, them coming to me. And the first thing I seen was the park. So I jumped back into the park over a wall. And that's when my clothes was muddy from rolling in the mud. And the last thing I remember is the cop telling me to freeze. And even where I was from at that time, even though you're innocent, but we had this fear of police because there was a lot of wrongdoing in my neighborhood. So I continued to run anyway. And the last thing I remember that I woke up and I was in a police van because I was knocked unconscious. So they took you to the police station and they started questioning you. What was the tone like? You know, they have this term that's called good cop, bad cop. And when I first went into the park originally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to come home because... They said they was going to give us a um, a desk appearance for family court for uh, 
an unlawful entry in the park and rioting, just being there. So I thought, okay, I'll be home in a few minutes. Those few minutes turned into a few hours, which turned into three days. So what kind of questions were they asking you and you, what were they doing? You know, I, I, we all been in, watched our episodes of Law & Order and CSI, but this was a real-life situation. And here I was, 14 years old. Um, don't look like the way I look now. I was very small, very <laughs> fatigued, very, um, very small. And sort of slowly about what happened in the park, uh, we don't know. The questions start to get a little bit more stern because the cops was not getting what they want. And first of all, neither one of us knew about anything, about what happened. We just knew about a couple of events in the park. But as time went on, we could see that it went from one cop to two cops. Then they had the best of New York's detectives in one room, questioning a minor, which was a, which was a violation in the first place. Did they let you know that you could get a lawyer? You know, when we were young, we heard about Miranda rights, right? But we never experienced it. So quite honestly, when I was young, I really didn't know what that meant. And I talk about it now. I, I kind of chuckle about it, but it wasn't funny at the time. I was like, who's Miranda? I really didn't have no clue about my Miranda rights. And they have a thing that where they'll talk to you and they'll tell you Miranda rights while you're kind of dazed and not thinking. Because remember, I was knocked unconscious before that. So they're telling me I have the right to remain silent. Anything you say will be held against you in the court of law which is the second sentence, but that's all going over my head. But they were protecting themselves as well, that they read out on Miranda rights. So this went on for over three days. And as you said, it became more stern. When did they start accusing you? Okay, so not even the detectives knew about uh, a woman being attacked because nobody knew because, first of all, the guys, we wasn't there. So they received a call. The detectives received a call. Um, I believe it was the next day because we were being questioned so much. We were in rooms where there were no windows. But I realized that there was a lot of time that went by. Once that call came, they were going to let us let us go home and go to family court. And then it changed the tone. And the detective said, no one is going anywhere. And... We're going to start speaking about a woman being attacked. And that's when we was just thrown off because we didn't understand what they were speaking of. Obviously, you were scared. I think scared was an understatement. I was petrified. Um, I thought, and my guys, which is my brothers now, we thought we might never leave that precinct. Because first of all, we was not um, under parental guidance. And we were 14, 15, 16, respectively. So it's a term I use that it felt like it was a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. Did they get physical at all? Yes. In what way? Uh, for me, and um, now I know about the other guys as well, because now we know what happened to each one of us. But for me, um, first I was hit with the police helmet, and then there was a lot of um, pushing, shrugging, you know, um, a lot of profanity being used. Um, some language saying that we know what happens to right in the Rikers Island with sexual you predators. You with that, right? Yeah, and you don't want to go there. Um, and all I remember that I just wanted to go home. And as days went on, I just thought, please let this be over. And at this time, 
maybe within the second day of questioning, and we went to three different uh, precincts. And I was like, is this going to end? And at that time, we wanted to tell them whatever they wanted to hear. And then when you look back at our statements and our, our videotape confession, it doesn't make sense. And it almost felt like we were being coached. And it felt like multiple choice. Because they would tell us, for example, where was the scene of the attack? And we would just pick one. And if we really read the transcript, it didn't make sense. But at the time, uh, it was an election year in 1989, and cops had to meet the quota, and which means, you know, they have to arrest a lot of people at the time, and we were the we were the victim of that. You know, so it was a whole slew of things happening within those three days. Those three days, what came out of it was the five of you confessed. Many people looked at that and said, okay, they have them dead to rights. Why did they confess? They wouldn't confess if they weren't guilty. Why did you confess? Yeah. And when, when I tell people this, right, um, picture yourself in a room with seasoned detectives towering over you. And we never confessed to the actual rape, a sexual assault. We all mentioned each other in it, you know, because we didn't want to be involved in that, but not knowing, even stating that, that we already involved. So we, I know in my statement, I said, uh, this person was there, this person attacked a, a male jogger, which it didn't make sense because it didn't happen. Um, but being there and being in a room for three days and thinking that your life is over, you would say anything. And adults would do this. So imagine children. And that's the thing, that they had children there taking advantage of children. And that was the number one thing that, once they take uh, control of your mind mentally, they have you. And they knew these word games, how to phrase it and how to make us very upset and very scared, you know, so it became easy to them. But for us, it was very hard. So it goes to court. Are you thinking, I'm innocent. There's no way they'll get a conviction that they'll find us guilty. Is that what you were thinking? You know, so we saw this happened in 1989 and we were going court back and forth until the end of 1990. And my trial, actually, was um, October 1990 to December 1990. The first trial, three of the guys, they lost trial. But me, still being young and naive and optimistic, I'm thinking, there's no way that I will get convicted. And once they figure out that I didn't do it, they will release the other guys. Um, that optimistic was thrown out the window because we all was convicted. Um, but even during that time, that year and a half of being out, it was hard just trying to survive on the outside because I couldn't be a regular kid. I had to drop out of high school because the pressure of being labeled a sex offender was very harsh for anyone. But for a kid, it was it was unimaginable. So how were you treated outside of uh, Um I was treated like I was in prison because I had to be escorted everywhere with my, my sisters and my brother-in-law. Lydia had to escort me everywhere I went. And when I went to school, in particular, I remember this. I was in 10th grade. And I remember kids that I thought I knew. And they said, how you doing, Kevin? And as I walked by, I could hear the whispers saying, he's a rapist. And just imagine kids. My daughter's in high school now. I can't even imagine someone saying that to her, that she's just something that wasn't true. So um, I had the strength from within to get through it, you know, to, to get through that process. So when you were convicted, 
it had to be a shock. I remember that day, and I talked to my sister recently about this, that um, we was on deliberations, and we was the, the verdict was about to be read, and I just left. My whole family went into the courthouse, and my family was saying, wait, wait, Kevin. I just wanted it to be over. Um, I didn't know where it would lean at, but I could realize at 16 at the time that it wasn't leaning to my uh, in our favor. But I just wanted to get it over with, whatever was going to happen, and... It turned out that I received a five to ten year sentence. Our guest is Kevin Richardson, one of the Central Park Five who was wrongly accused and convicted of the rape and assault of a female jogger in 1989. Kevin Richardson was in Gettysburg last weekend. Here's more of that conversation. So you were incarcerated where? I started out in the juvenile maximum security, which it was a maximum security where all kids that some did crimes that was very offensive. And it was some kids that actually was innocent, but they were all put into one location in which they would say, quote unquote, the worst of the worst was in that prison. So I had to learn how to actually mature faster than expected. I was still young, but my physical features had, I grew and I had to become a man right then and there, even though I was a kid, you know? Um, And that's why I started my sentence And then when I turned 21, my 21st birthday, I was graduated to a maximum security prison for adults. And that was my birthday for 21. And I spent the last two, three years there. Um, So I wound up doing seven years in, in, in three prisons. Again, we all picture what prison is like, even the juvenile facility. Was it dangerous? I would like to paint the picture. The first day, we all was going to this place called Sparford Juvenile Center in the Bronx, New York. As we got there, entering, we heard kids on gates inside the prison screaming, we're going to get you. You know, because the one thing you don't want to be in prison for is two things. To be a sexual offender, the only thing that, that um, trumps that is child molestation. And those are the worst things to be in prison for, innocent or not. Just to have that under you, over you, wasn't a good thing. So I remember speaking to one of the guys that day, and I told him, all we have is each other. I really didn't know what that meant at 16, at 14, I'm sorry, at the time. But I just knew that we had to, you know, band together because we didn't have our parents. We just had each other inside that place. How did you survive? You know, uh, I survived for people starting to see me and realize who I am. When people started to see my character, then they thought there's no way this guy could do that. And when they started to see me every day, they knew that. And I think the way that my actions was, the way I carried myself, people started to respect that. And also, I grew. Inside, I'm a big teddy bear. But on the outside, I had to have this persona, this style, for people that, you know, do not mess with me. And it's something that I didn't enjoy doing, but because of my surroundings, I had to adjust like that. I had to really watch my back and make sure that nothing's happened to me. Um, with the grace of God, I was okay physically. Uh, mentally, no. And I have seen many things in prison happen to others that I wouldn't wish, wish that on my, my enemy. And it was, very, it was very hard to adjust to, but it happened. So when did you first hear the name Matisse Reyes? Uh, Matias Reyes. Um the first time I heard of that name was when, this was 2001, 
when they started to investigate Matthias Reyes, my attorneys, because we found out that there was the real assailant that did the crime of a woman jogger. Uh, his name was read to us, and we was wondering, who is this guy? And back in 2002, they tried to tie his name into us and saying that we were one, which was untrue because we didn't know each other. So when we heard that name, we thought, wow, the truth could really come out? Will someone really admit to this? And then come to find out that he didn't have anything to lose because he was running, he was doing a life sentence. So that's when we heard the name Monteas Reyes. And in 1989, he was also known as the East Side Rapist. And he was known for uh, assaulting women in the, in the 80s before the Central Park Jogger case. So that was his MO, that he used to do that to others. And that's how I became to know him. How long after that, that you heard the name and your lawyers were investigating him, were you released? Oh, wow. Well, I was released in 1997, but we were still fighting for the civil suit. Uh, so you were you were out of jail yeah. by the time his name came up. Right. I was, I was out of jail in 1997. The only two that were still in prison was Corey Wise and Raymond Santana. They didn't get released yet. So... Even though I was out of prison, it still felt like I was inside because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't adjust. So I felt like I was trapped inside my own home. So when we found out about Mateus Vegas, I was actually working that night. And one of my best friends called me about this guy. And he told me, you, you heard about, they found the real guy. And I thought that maybe he was doing some type of sick joke that wasn't funny at the time, but it was actually true. So you said that you still felt guilty even though you weren't in prison any longer. Did you ever stop feeling that way? When did you start feeling somewhat normal that, okay, I can work, I can get married, I can have a family, that it was somewhat normal? Yeah. I never felt guilty, but I felt like... um Really, to be honest, in 2002, when the case got overturned, we had that, quote unquote, the monkey off our back. And um, the civil suit didn't matter to us. It was just that letting people know that we didn't do it. Because during that time, we were screaming that we was innocent, but there was like whispers to the world. We felt like no one was listening to us. But even since we were young, we were saying that we were innocent. But the, uh, the outpour of the negative attention outweighed that, you know, so... You know, after 2002, we started to feel, okay, it's going to go in the right direction. But we were wrong. Because even in 2002, there were people still doubting us after the fact. So it was shameful that we still had to fight for our innocence when we are actually innocent. So it was up until actually but When They See Us came out, the Netflix series, where it gave us our voice back. But initially, when we first started, it was my good friend Ken Burns that gave us our, 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 you know, our voice back, you know. And then as time went on, we became more more um, vulnerable to it. So you realize, of course, I'm sure, that there are still people out there who probably think you're guilty. One of the reasons being that when Reyes was arrested and charged and convicted of this, it didn't get near the attention that it did when the five of you were arrested. What do you say to those people? You know, it's it's some people that's, you know, it's a, it's a phrase when people, 
so stuck on the lies, they begin to believe it themselves. And as time went on, in the beginning, we was we used to think about that. But now we know, and I always say God knows, and our family, people that truly know us knows that it was impossible that we did it. Even if you, let's take out uh, the forensics. Let's take out that there was lack of, of physical evidence. If you add that to it, there's no way possible. And I know one time when, when the woman was actually attacked, they showed in a park that it was only four footsteps. Her and Mateus Reyes, not five, six teenagers. You know, you would have seen so many footprints there. And for kids, I know for me as a teenager, my daughter is DNA everywhere when she eats a sandwich. When there's crumbs everywhere, you're going to tell me six kids went and attacked a woman and nothing happened, no evidence whatsoever. So to people that still believe that or still do, because it probably is, God bless you. It's Black History Month. Many people, when they think of Black history, go back to Harriet Tubman, go back to the 1850s, 1860s, when African-Americans were enslaved. But you're part of Black history. What do you think about that? It's mind-boggling, but I embrace it. I embrace it because now I know I have the, the torch and for our ancestors that pass it to us and to be mentioned in the same breath is unbelievable. You know, I'm a very humble person, so when people tell me that you are Black history, you're a part of this, it's, it's refreshing because I know I still have a lot of work to do. And all I want to do is make my ancestors proud that you know, they paved the way for me to be here. So especially during this time, I do everything in my, my due diligence to pass the word on and raise awareness to others. Kevin Richardson, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Spark on WITF, your home for NPR and discovering all things local. I'm Scott Lamar. Have yourself a great day.